If there's one thing the book world likes, it's a literary prize. In the U.S. alone, there are dozens of them. The Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Penn Award, the Dayton Literary Prize. And there are just as many, if not more, awards for genre books. The Edgars for Crime and Mystery, the Ritas for Romance, and the Hugos and the Nebulas for Science Fiction and Fantasy, and on and on. But there is one prize that stands apart. One that has the singular ability with the saying of one name to confer instant admittance to the global literary canon. It is, of course, the Nobel Prize for Literature, given annually to an author for their body of work. And not only is it the most prestigious, it is also the most lucrative. When Kazuo Ishiguro won the Nobel Prize last year, he got a check for 9 million Swedish kroner, which is about $1.1 million. And he also got an 18-karat gold medal, which might even be worth more than the prize money itself. In 2014, James Watson, who shared the 1962 Nobel Prize for Medicine for his part in describing the double helix structure of DNA, auctioned his medal off for a cool $4.2 million. And for writers, there is another benefit, book sales. When Alice Munro won the Nobel in 2013, her U.S. book sales increased tenfold, going from about 3,000 copies sold the week before the announcement to more than 30,000 the week after. And though the boost diminishes over time, it never truly goes away. That gold sticker and the words winner of the Nobel Prize will continue to move units as long as the Nobel Prize is a thing. And until recently, there was no reason to put an expiration date on the Nobel's reign. It's a scandal that's left the Swedish Academy in turmoil and the Nobel Prize for Literature on hold, at least for now. The Academy decided this year's winner will be selected and announced in 2019. So how do we get here? It's a story of salacious accusations and high-profile resignations that have rocked the Nobel Prize Committee for months and may put the very existence of the Nobel in doubt. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And yes, this is the Swedish National Anthem. In this episode, we follow the story of the Swedish Academy, its Nobel Prize Committee, and the scandal that has brought the Me Too movement to the Nobel's doorstep. We take stock of where the Nobel is, where it came from, and what its future might be. It's a story of dynamite, premature obituaries, arcane bylaws, and a super-secret society of Scandinavians. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Want to give audiobooks a try for your next book club pick but don't know where to start? Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for great collections to get you going. With pieces like Bringing the Classroom to You, Audiobooks by Professors, and listicles such as Six Books That Shed Light on Race Relations in America, Penguin Random House Audio provides themes to choose from along with suggested questions and discussion points for your next book club meeting. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot and bring your book club meetings to a new level. Start listening today. Well, the immediate crisis that is going on right now started with a newspaper article in Sweden's largest daily newspaper, Dagens Nyheter, in November of 2017, when the Me Too movement reached Sweden. This is Erica Kern, a native Swede who has been tracking the story for us at Book Riot. And this article featured, ironically, 18 women who um, accused a man of sexual assault. And this man 
is married to a member of the academy, and he has received financial support from the academy. This is the Swedish Academy, the secretive body that is responsible for awarding the Nobel in literature every fall. And the name of the man accused of these assaults is Peter Arnaud. So he has been receiving several of these awards, and he is also personal friends with other members of the Academy, which then raises the issue of severe conflicts of interest. So when this article was published, the then secretary, Sarah Danius, she launched an investigation into this. And it is the result of this investigation that has made the Academy crumble now in 2018. The problem, though, is that we don't know exactly what this investigation found. We only know that immediately after the results of the investigation were given to the Academy, three of its 18 members promptly resigned. But we don't know why they resigned. Yes, because again, it's the secrecy. We know that they found something because we know they have resigned. But when you become a member of the Academy, you sign a very extensive and far-reaching NDA, non-disclosure agreement. But if we read between the lines, we have a pretty good idea. After the Academy got whatever the results of the investigation of Arnaud were, they decided to do nothing. And the cryptic statements that the members made on their resignation suggest that this inaction drove them to resign. One of the members made this statement. The Swedish Academy has for a long time had serious problems and has now tried to solve them in a way that puts obscure considerations before its own rules and which constitute a betrayal to its founders. If we connect the dots, most people agree that this is suggesting that the Academy did not do enough to respond to the accusations against Arnaud and the web of connections the Academy had with him. Okay, so big deal. Three people resigned. Just get new members who are on board with what the Academy wants to do and proceed, right? Wrong. Because it turns out you can't resign. The only way to leave the Academy's Nobel Committee is to die. Members are elected for life. So it's like the Eagles song. It's like Hotel California. You know, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> so we have a, a number of members who have checked out. And since they are then elected for life, you can't elect a new member until someone actually passes away. So these members weren't really resigning. They were saying they wouldn't show up to vote. And in order to elect new members, the Academy's bylaws say you need a quorum of 12 to vote. Check my math here. The committee has 18 members, three leave. That leaves 15, enough to have a quorum to conduct the business of the Nobel. Well, it would be 15, except a few members had already resigned had it not been replaced over the past 30 years. All right, let's get in the DeLorean, get up to 88 miles per hour, and head back to the last time there was a fully functioning 18-member committee, 1989. The seeds of the current crisis were sown during another literary scandal. Shastid Ekman, who left the Academy in 1989 already, when they faced their most recent crisis over the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Ekman resigned along with two other members when the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa, basically a holy war against one person, for Salman Rushdie for what he called blasphemous depictions of Islam in his novel The Satanic Verses. The Nobel Committee issued a statement in support of freedom of expression, but did not name the Ayatollah, Iran, or the Rushdie situation specifically. But Ekman resigned, thinking the Academy had not gone far enough. 
So that brings us down to 17 members. The next member to resign did so for ideological reasons that still aren't exactly clear. Nortalutas, who has actually already sent a letter to the royal court asking to resign, even though she hasn't been working for three years. So now we're down to 16. Then comes the three November 2017 resignations, and we're down to 13 members. And this is where it gets dicey. At this point, we are two more resignations away from the Nobel becoming untenable. They need to be 12 because the bylaws says that at least 11 members need to be present for a new member to be elected. They can't replace the members who have resigned. And if one of the active members would pass away, then there's not a quorum to elect a replacement. If you get to 11, you technically have enough to elect a new member, but you would only be holding an election if someone died. This in itself would mean, though, that you are at that moment only at 10 active members, not enough to hold a vote. And then, months of turmoil following the November resignations came to a head. On April 17th, the permanent secretary, Sarah Danius, resigned. Danius made a statement announcing her resignation, saying that after a three-hour meeting, she had lost the backing of the committee. Ten days later, another committee member, Sarah Stridsberg, resigned, bringing the active members to 11. The Nobel's death spiral was complete. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. As the premier publisher in the audiobook industry, Penguin Random House Audio is dedicated to producing top quality audiobooks written and read by the best in the business. Today, they're recommending Educated, written by Tara Westover and read by Julia Whelan. Winner of an Audiophile Earphones Award, this audiobook is riveting. Westover's memoir about her upbringing in a survivalist religious family and how she eventually breaks free from them, eventually getting a PhD from Cambridge University, is worthy of a binge listen. Your book club will be talking about this audiobook long after the meeting ends. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for more book club suggestions and other titles from Penguin Random House Audio. It's huge. It is absolutely huge because the thing is that the Nobel Prize is a matter of great pride in Sweden. We don't, you know, it's a small country. It's 10 million people. We, you know, we have IKEA and then we have the Nobel Prize. This would be like if North Carolina decided who the most accomplished people in the world were. Oh, we're very proud of it. We're, it's a very big thing. Maybe not year-round, but certainly in the weeks gathering up to the announcements and up to the awards ceremony. This is Emily Ringborg. She's a librarian in Stockholm and a longtime Book Riot reader. You know, we're not a big country. We don't make much fuss about ourselves. And we're not known for a lot of big things, but people know about the Nobel Prize. It's this and Ikea that are, that are world-renowned. Um <laughs> We take great pride in that. It makes sense. Think about it. Every year, the whole world turns its attention to a few dozen Swedes who crown the best and brightest living humans. In the main public library where I work, we put up a big TV screen, like on a projector, and people come from all over to to watch the announcement live. And then there's a big dash to the information desk to get hold of books. Now that I'm living here in the United States, the big hustle and bustle is the announcement of the prizes, and then it kind of goes away. But in Sweden, the the prizes, the announcement of the prizes, I mean, they, it gets attention, but the big deal is December 10th. That's when they cancel all the programming and everything is just broadcast live from the Nobel <laughs> festivities. 
December 10th, the day of the award ceremony in Sweden, is the anniversary of the death of Alfred Nobel, who established the Nobel Prizes in his will, and who, shall we say, open-ended provisions for the prizes are one reason the award finds itself at a crossroads today. Alfred Nobel was an inventor and venture capitalist. He made enough of a fortune in the oil industry in Imperial Russia so that he could invest in a new invention, which ended up being dynamite. He was a pacifist, but he invented dynamite. And when he died, he never married, he never had any children. So in his last will and testament, he donated his entire fortune to what is today the Nobel Prize. It was a titanic fortune, and his bequest is odd for a couple of reasons. First of all, the details of how these prizes should be given out are pretty sketchy. He just says that an equal portion of the prize money should be given in five fields, medicine, chemistry, physics, literature, and peace, and he names an organization for each to be in charge of administering that award. And that's pretty much it. He doesn't outline how the winners should be selected, how the organizations he has named should carry out the awards, or even where the ceremony should be held, or if there should be a ceremony at all. If this seems a little half-baked, well, it was because Alfred didn't decide until very late in his life that this is how he wanted to spend his estate. That decision came in a moment of existential panic. On April 18, 1888, Alfred Nobel opened his newspaper in his Paris mansion to read disquieting news. He had died. The paper had mistaken his brother's death for his own. The wealthy Nobels apparently were pretty difficult to tell apart. (laughs) And the obituary he read there shook him. It called him the merchant of death, not only for his invention of dynamite, but also for his advances in gunpowder that had started the mechanical reinvention of warfare at the turn of the 20th century. Unbeknownst to his family, Nobel changed his will so that 94% of his estate would take form of prizes to those who during their preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. Five years after his death in 1896, the first round of the Nobels were awarded, but it would take a few years before the world caught on to how big of a deal these new prizes were. It wasn't until the seventh year of the awards that the world caught Nobel fever. In 1903, Marie Curie shared the prize in physics with her husband Pierre, and the news caused a sensation in the French press. The Curies had PhDs, yes, but they worked pretty ordinary jobs in technical schools, and their new instant fortune was unfathomable. The Curies split the 40,000 franc prize, which at that point was double the entire amount of money the French Academy dispersed in prizes and grants in the sciences in a single year. By the time Marie Curie won again in 1911, this time for chemistry on her own, both she and the Nobel were household names the world over. Alfred Nobel probably didn't anticipate how famous his award would become. Certainly, the organization he entrusted the literature prize to didn't have the experience to run such a high-profile award. Frankly, nobody did. The Swedish Academy was founded in 1786 by the Swedish king, Gustav III, and he was very influenced by the French academies of the 18th century. So he founded this academy as a way of setting the bar for what is good literary taste. So he wrote the bylaws himself. And they have been left without any amendments or changes up until now. So the corporation model of the Swedish Academy is 232 years old. We've already seen that not getting around to addressing this little problem of not being able to replace members who have resigned turned out to be an oversight. 
but there is an upside to not changing the laws your king established 232 years ago. If you still have a king, and Sweden does, well then maybe the king can fix the mess. Up until now, there has never been a true crisis, so no one has really had to look into what he can and cannot do. It would seem that he actually has the jurisdiction to change the bylaws. The royal court made a press release saying that the king would change the bylaws so that members who are still alive can actually resign their seats and leave the academy. The current king is Gustav XVI, and basically he is saying, well, since it was my ancestor 13 Gustavs ago that instituted this, and nothing has changed legally, well, then I have the authority to step in. Except, of course, that the role of the monarchy in Sweden isn't exactly the same as it was in the late 18th century. When Gustav III established the laws of the academy, he didn't worry about the academy's ability to self-govern or to navigate a crisis, because it was his academy, and he could, through the magic of, you know, complete monarchical control, change the rules if they needed changing. But when the role of the monarchy changed after World War I, updating the academy's bylaws really wasn't on anybody's mind. The Swedish Academy is now basically marooned on its own island. This is great if things are going well, but a calamity if things don't. And in this case, the only person with any sort of claim to intercede is the current king. Can he, though? Does the fact that the king established the Swedish Academy a couple of centuries ago, decades before Alfred Nobel was even born, give him the power to reshape literature's grandest prize? Yeah, the thing is that no one really knows. (laughs) No one really knows because the bylaws are so old. I was talking to a friend about this because I don't really ever think about the king. The royal family are just sort of like there in the periphery. I think people generally like him and and the rest of the royal family. I don't know. It's He's never been involved in anything. And that's one of his things, right? He's He's neutral. But... When it came out that he was thinking about getting involved, it was sort of 50-50 people making jokes about it and people saying that, oh good, he's taking charge. By canceling this award, though, the Swedish Academy has really only kicked the can down the road a little. The structural problems aren't going away. They may have bought some time, but what they will do with that time is very much in doubt. And as of right now, that's where we are. The Academy cannot proceed under its current bylaws, and they have no mechanism to change them. It's unclear if the king has the jurisdiction to change them. Any change he might try to make, or the Academy would try to make, would likely end up in court. One thing is clear. The Academy's historical cover for its decision-making, its obsessive secrecy, can no longer protect it. Even before this year's postponement was announced, Swedish protesters were gathering outside the academy by the thousands during some of its weekly meetings. So the academy meets every Thursday. And yesterday during their meeting, there was a demonstration outside of their office. 2,000 people showed up. The irony is that by trying to cover up their conflicts of interest and misbehavior by its associates, the academy has brought attention on itself like never before. And people are asking, wait, is this how the Nobel is awarded? And the inevitable next question, how should this thing be awarded? I think it's important that it's coming out. And and it's important that our journalists are keeping an eye on it. And they they really are. They're doing an amazing job. And it won't be going away anytime soon. 
whoever it is opens that door and announces the new prize winner, people will be talking about this, of course, rightly so, because they don't deserve for it to go away. The good news, though, is that the Academy does release the notes about its award discussions, so we will find out exactly why the Academy decided to postpone this year and how the next winners were chosen. Assuming that any more winners are ever chosen. Yes, assuming that. Though the downside is we might have to wait a little while for those notes. These uh, discussions that are released, you know, 50 years after the decision is made. So we will find out how this next winner was chosen under these circumstances. Okay, so we'll schedule a follow-up episode for, let me check my calendar to see if I'm free, December 10th, 2068. It's a date. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Special production assistance from Jeremy Desmond. Special thanks to Erica Cairn and Emily Ringborg. You can find links in the show notes to Erica's pieces about the Nobel crisis. For all of you nerds, we're giving away the 10 best books about books from 2017 just for annotated listeners. Find the link in the show notes or go to bookriot.com slash annotated2, that's the number two, to enter for a chance to win. And last but not least, you can help Annotated out by rating and reviewing Annotated on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the show, which helps us get advertisers, which allows us to make more and better episodes. And until next time, keep on reading. Keep on reading.